This is available as a podcast and a webinar. This conference will now be recorded. All right, good Friday morning to you. Today is our last session in June. We will have a bunch of classes coming up in July, uh, but uh, just in time for you to get your hours before the end of July. Uh, but this is the last one in June. Uh, today, we're going to talk about sentencing, fair justice, and COVID issues. Uh, we have three presenters for you to, uh, this morning. Um, we all know Judge Anna Huberman. Uh, she is the presiding judge and from Country Meadows Justice Court. Uh, she uh, is the reigning uh, Justice of the Peace of the Year and has her JD from the University of Buenos Aires. Uh, we have a new presenter, uh, the Honorable Lenore Triggs, who is the Associate Presiding Justice of the Peace. Uh, she's in Arcadia Biltmore, uh, and um, she is a local person growing up in Phoenix and graduating summa cum laude from ASU. Uh, and so we are happy to have her. And then a new face for us is the Honorable Mary Jo Barsetti. And uh, I've known Mary Jo for a number of years. Uh, she's a, a longtime pro tem, and she's been a judge for the Tempe City Court since 2010. And she has her undergrad and law degree from Drake University. And if anyone wants to pop in and tell me where Drake is, I'll send you a cookie. The 18th. No cookies? All right, Drake is in Iowa. Uh, so we're very happy to have the three of them join us, and I'll turn it over to Joe. Oh, and uh, as always, uh, please, uh, you can leave your camera on or off. Uh, if you leave your camera on, please be paying attention. Uh, please mute yourself unless you're asking a question. You can ask questions by turning on your microphone or putting them in the chat box. All right, Judge Huberman. All right, good morning. Um, I would encourage folks to, you know, to ask questions as they come up, you know, make this a lively conversation. Um, so fair justice is a really broad topic, um, and you will see uh, by the presentation how, uh, how broad it actually is and how many things are included. Um, just to give everyone a really, really quick recap of, of of how this came about. Um, if you all remember uh, when there was the the, um, the protests in Ferguson, um, at the time it had to do with a police shooting. Um, but what came from that was the realization of how some of these local jurisdictions uh, we're dealing with their criminal justice system. Uh, and particularly in the Ferguson case, it had to do with city uh, issues, so things of low, uh, limited jurisdiction. And this realization, I think we already knew it, but uh, it became more public and more widespread to talk about how the cities were using uh, the court system as a revenue generator. Um, and so this, you know, brought a lot of national talk and there was a lot of conversations we don't definitely don't have time to go into any of that uh, but that is how this whole thing started uh, there was a there's been a movement for uh, for over a decade now uh, to do with fair justice and access to justice and actually as as typically happens in Arizona 
Arizona has been on the forefront of this. They, it was, I don't remember, it was the second or the third, but it was one of the first states that actually created an access to justice commission. Um, so this is something that the Supreme Court um, has been looking and pushing for a while. Um, so this is a little of what we're gonna talk about today. You know, what what is, you know, what does fair justice encompass? What is the role the judge can play in all this? And how has it been evolving? So in 2016, the Supreme Court created a task force that was called Fair Justice for All. Um, and this is what the, the, the task force was, with the task force, um, what they were asked to, to look at, um, which as you can see, it's very, very broad, but it just had to do with um, helping um, people make their payments, what to do with folks who couldn't make payments, if the payments could be waived, how to do collections, uh, allowing community service instead of payment. Uh, one of the, the big things, and that, you know, was the push, you, you, you all might remember, uh, even if you weren't in the judicial system, it was a big thing in the news over doing away with cash bails. Um, and the reviewing the suspending the driver's license, uh, giving education to judicial officers, um, and, uh, and and I mean I always find that this is really interesting. Is that in 2016 we were talking about technological solutions uh, as a way to encourage people to come to court and to reduce failures to appear. And at that time, it seemed like a kind of a pie in the sky ideal to be able to do virtual hearings. And there were, you know, limited uh, pilot programs going on here and there as to, you know, we, we're going to try this in this area, we're going to try this in that area. And then, as everyone knows, March of 2020, it was like, okay, we're all going virtual. Uh, and uh, so we will talk a little bit about that later. But I think what's important to understand is that although when we talk about virtual appearances and we've been talking about it in the in the context of COVID, uh, this was this was an ideal that we had way before COVID. This was always recognized as a way to facilitate access to justice um, and to create a more fair justice system for everyone and. I think what the pandemic did was accelerate this for us, but I think that's where we should be clear on the mindset that this isn't that we are doing virtual because we did it during the pandemic. We're doing virtual because this was always the objective. The pandemic taught us how to do it and what we can accomplish with it. Uh, so I think that that's one of, one of the important things that you know we tend to forget because we always associate this um, with with the pandemic. So this is uh, from the 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 task force. Uh, this task force uh, created. They met and and they they created a document uh, with the recommendations and. This was one of the uh, key points of it, that the, the, the penalty should not promote a cycle of poverty 
by imposing excessive amounts or unduly restricting people's ability to be gainfully employed. Um, because, uh, I mean, I think this is kind of obvious. Um, people, you know, if, if the, the people who are getting tickets for not having insurance, not having registration, obviously weren't the well-to-do people. Anyone who forgot to renew their registration uh, and you got a ticket, you could go the next day, fix it, and it wasn't a, a, a problem. But, you know, these are people who probably couldn't afford to have insurance, couldn't afford to have registration, and they would get ticketed every time and they would get piled up on. And, and I understand that there's a there's a, a safety issue about making sure we don't have people driving around without insurance. And um, But there has to be some recognition as to how this was affecting. And the cycle of poverty was this whole idea that your license suspended, then you wouldn't be able to drive because you had your license suspended, so you weren't able to make money to pay the tickets that you owed. And we were issuing warrants for non-payment of fines. And so at some point, those people would actually get arrested. They would sit in jail sometimes, you know, up to a week, which would, you know, they would lose their jobs and, and everything that came you know, related to that, but that is what was considered that cycle of poverty. Um, but uh, in 2016, like I said, they 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 created that report. These are the things that were recommended in that report that actually became a reality in Arizona. Um, as everyone probably knows, that driver's license are no longer suspended for failures to appear or non-payment of civil penalties. Um, that That is you know, part of what I was talking about before, about not, um, uh, not promoting that cycle. Um, all fines at this point can now, some of these things happen in different legislative years, um, but, but from 2016, or I guess 2017 legislate, uh, the, the legislation 2017 through now, these things have all come to pass. Um, all fines can be mitigated except for DUI fines, and then there's some fees and surcharges that can. But even fines that are mandatory uh, can still be mitigated. Uh, so when, when I pose the question of what can the judge do, this is the biggest tool that we as judges have, which is to take into account the person's ability to pay and mitigate the fines accordingly. Um, ARS 13-824 was amended and now allows community service for surcharges. Um, and it links the community service, uh, uh, the, the amount of hours to the minimum wage. So, this made it that at least in all of Arizona, the, the value of community service is the same, that it didn't depend on the judge to say, I'm gonna give you $5 an hour for community service, I'm gonna give you 20. Um, and so this was established statutorily. Um, this one, the, the, the civil for traffic 28, 1303 and 1603 and 1604 allow the mitigation of civil fines. 
And this also allows the judge to impose education and treatment programs as penalties. So you could send someone to a class or some other ways um, to, to, in lieu of payment. Uh, registration violations, this is the, I think the newest of these changes uh, are now uh, can be dismissed. Before registration, not only did they have mandatory fines, um, but with proof of registration, uh, you still had to pay the mandatory fine. So this is a big change. Impound laws have changed. Some of you who've been around remember when someone would get stopped for driving on a suspended license and they would impound their cars. So now not only did they get the ticket for driving on a suspended license, now they had to pay $500 to get their car out of impound. Um, and Many people lost their vehicles in those types of situations. Um, all criminal convictions today qualify for set-asides and OR is the presumptive release condition. So th these are a lot of the big changes that came from that task force. Now we in Maricopa County um, have done things beyond just these legislative changes. So we created uh, the video arraignment court uh, this is, um, I mean, we the Maricopa County won an award for this. Uh, this was, I mean, I think that Maricopa County uh, is is has done a lot of of good programs and a lot of good things, but this may possibly the, be one of the best things that uh, we have ever done. Uh, this allowed uh, defendants who are in custody to be able to be seen. Uh, within 24 hours or 48 hours at the most. They, we, we no longer transported. Uh, we used to have to transport inmates to court when they were in custody. That meant that sometimes, you know, some courts only saw inmates or were only allowed by the jail to transport inmates once a week. So if the person was arrested on the day or the day after that, that that judge's day, they would have to sit for the full week in custody to see the judge. Uh, so the the vid that video court has been really a game changer. Maricopa County implemented the NCAP program. Uh, I know that a lot of courts used to do this on their own before it was uh, set up through court administration. Uh, there were, you know, there, there, there were all sorts of practices, uh, folks, you know, judges who didn't allow anyone to get, uh, you know, their license uh, unsuspended unless they paid the full amount or wouldn't quash a warrant until all the fines had been paid. Everybody had different ways of doing things. But I think in general, there were many, many judges in the courts uh, that when someone appeared, they would allow them to uh, pull their cases from fair and set up some kind of a payment plan, uh, resetting payment plans, and allowing them to get their license back while they were making those payments. Um, then City of Phoenix came up with it like it was some big innovation, but uh, we, you know, many of us had already been doing this in Maricopa. But now Maricopa has it set up through court admin, so there, there is, uh, there, there's more of a formalized program. I don't know that we had time, and I don't know if Charles, you included this in material. We had a presentation the other day 
on NCAP now that has uh, been begun through AOC. For some strange reason, this this was presented to the managers. I think it should have been presented to the judges. Um, and I'm going to work on uh, getting AOC to uh, to do a presentation uh, for the judges because I mean the managers in the end can bring it to their judges, but the judges are the ones who are going to ultimately make the decision. Um, I was very interested in this program, and I think that it will reduce a lot of um, clerk time for our clerks if they can do it through the AOC program. Um, they they have it set up, they have it, uh, it'll be uh, done through ISIS. I, th I think it, it, it's probably uh, a better program. But the idea with NCAP is that they pay the, the fair fee, which is now $49. Old cases still had the $35 in there. And then with that payment, uh, the case can be removed uh, from FAIR and allow uh, them to reset a payment plan and begin paying. Uh, Maricopa County, we did encourage courts to implement procedures uh, precisely from what I said, that defendants didn't leave the court with active warrants. Uh, we've adopted a best practice to deal with old warrants, old cases. Uh, there's still cases that are 20 years old or you know, 15 years old that have open warrants and, and um, there was never, there, there, a, lot of, a lot of judges were under the impression that uh, warrants expired, but they actually don't. Uh, and so as judges, we need to proactively deal with those uh, old cases so we don't have someone being arrested 15 years later on, on a warrant for some you know, speeding ticket that didn't get paid. And, you know, in 1990, uh, we uh, we we allow now for online payments. Uh, we're working to enhance our website to make it more user friendly, more um, access to justice. Uh, we are encouraging courts to collect defendants' personal information and email addresses. I, I like to always tell defendants that if we don't have a way to find them, the way we find them is through a warrant. And so the more information we have for them, um, we have a way to contact them before we issue a warrant. Uh, so we can send them an email reminding them, hey, you missed a payment, or if you don't make this payment, we're going to issue a warrant, or things like that. Um, we, you know, we, we do know that a lot of the defendants that come through our court, they tend to change addresses and even phone numbers um often but email addresses tend to stay a little longer um so i think that email is is definitely the way to go we've been using email a lot during the pandemic and it's been uh, we found it to be a very very useful tool um and i i encourage everyone who's not doing it you know to do collect this information and use it as a method of communication we reactivated the automated text messages. Those, those were implemented some years before the pandemic started. Um, kind of like the messages you get from the doctor's office reminding you that you have an appointment. Um, this reminds you that you had a court date or that you had a payment. Uh, during the pandemic, they were stopped. 
because they would tell people to come to court and court the you know the the, the doors were closed and um but we've we've reactivated those because i think that those have a lot of value um they're helpful uh, for folks who tend to forget you know we are all busy professionals and i'm sure all of us live by our calendars if i don't have it in my calendar i definitely won't do it and won't remember it um but you know the, the, the common people don't don't they'll probably even know that they have a calendar on their phones um those are things that are more uh more for the everyday person it's really not not uh not not something that they have you know top of mind that they have to go to court on such a day and so i think the automated messages are really good um and then again we're encouraging courts to allow folks to email proof and compliance not make them come to court if you make them come to your court to show that they had proof of insurance or they've complied with getting their driver's license or whatever it is they have to take you know a, a couple of hours off work they have to travel who knows how far they're coming from you know the price of gas today when it is just as useful for us to get that by email they take a picture of it they scan it they send it in the email you have it in your email um so this is another thing that that we've been encouraging in in maricopa county this you know this graphic has been around for a while um and this again is taken directly from the task force um, report that says if justice in arizona is to be administered fairly the justice system must take into account the challenges that court-ordered sanctions pose for those living in poverty or otherwise struggling economically there you know except for duis that are mandatory and they can't be uh, they can't be mitigated um you know the, there's a lot of things you know i treat everyone equally everyone who gets a speeding ticket in my court pays a 300 fine but obviously the 300 fine is not the same for the person who drives uh you know a Porsche and goes at a hundred miles an hour because they can and because if they get stopped, you know, it's it's part of the risk of doing that, as opposed to someone who was running late for work and was caught speeding in their, you know, 2000 Honda. Um, those are things that those that's equality. You're giving everybody the same amount, but that's not necessarily equity. And those are just things that I think that we're trying to, to you know, with these types of presentations, get everyone thinking about that. Um, and that it doesn't have to be the same for everyone because it is not the same for everyone. Um, and these are, these, I, I, we, we pulled these charts. I just found this kind of interesting for everyone to look at. Uh, these are the top 10 civil traffic violations. Uh, that we have, and what what surprised me some was the the low number in general of these cases that end up being resolved by defensive driving school. Um, some of it could be because if you get more than one ticket, um, you know may, maybe it it, it it's you know, that having to decide only doing defensive driving school for one might make it that 
maybe the people just decide not to do it at all. I, mean, I don't know. There could be some of that. There is a new uh, bill in the legislature now to consider if if every anyone who gets more than one violation and one ticket can take care of all of them with one defensive driving class. Uh, so that will be interesting to see how that goes. Um, but these are the, the most common tickets. Uh, speeding, obviously, the first one. And as you can see, the, the, except for the no seatbelt, which who knows? I mean, I think those are paid in full mostly because they're not expensive tickets. Uh, but the no violent driver's license and no proof of insurance uh, become, uh, they, you know, they have a significant amount of those tickets. And those are tickets that, that the no insurance in particular carries a lot of consequences uh, for defendants. Um, and then these are the criminal ones, driving on a suspended license being number one, uh, and then criminal speeding. The, the three different types of criminal speeding are up there. So I just thought this was an interesting uh, to see. None of these, you know, the ones, some of them can't be, they're not defensive driving eligible, so that's why the zero is there. Um, but as you can see, the numbers of failure to appear, um, th th those are also things to, you know, to take into account. No, it's not the only, only, um, only moving violations are DDS eligible, and they. This is not a moving violation, so it's not the only one that's DDS eligible. That's not a moving violation is the usage of a cell phone. And I guess the only reason folks would want to do that one with DDS is because if you get a second offense, the fine is higher, um, but it doesn't carry points on the license, so it's probably really useless to go to defensive driving school for that. This is the chart of what fines can be mitigated, what can't, what assessments, uh, but I know that I think this is coming up in Judge Driggs's presentation also, so I'm just gonna skip over this. Um, and that's that that's that's a good point. Uh, when when folks come to our court and we tell them it's a $250 fine, we set them up on a payment plan, and so they can pay that fine off in in, in installments. When defensive driving school doesn't allow that, so they have to have the full amount. So I would I would I mean now. Um, the justice courts just recently approved, starting in October, we will be allowing the defensive driving schools to give defendants um, the an extension to complete defensive driving school without them having to come through the courts like they were having to do now. Um, and defensive driving school will give them a 60-day extension. So I've already changed the policy in my court, and I would recommend... Uh, those of you who are judges and can make that decision to actually change the policy in your court, make it a 60-day extension so it matches DDS. Um, I, I, and, and if it's something that you're seeing them in your court for whatever reason, or if you're giving them DDS on a criminal case, um, I always ask them, you know, this is going to cost you about $250. How long do you think until you can raise that money? And then try to give them a, a compliance date that's within the time that they can collect the money. Because to give them 30 days to do defensive driving school, and they're not going to be able to pay for, 
you're not really doing them any favors at all. So, you know, this is just all of this idea of looking at each individual person, taking into account their situations. And I would suggest, you know, in some cases, maybe even shifting our mindset that, you know, that, that folks, I mean, we get people who lie to us. We get people who, who are trying to game the system. That happens occasionally. I'm not saying that's not out there. But I suggest that most people are not those. You know, folks genuinely have uh, financial problems. They're, 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 they're behind on their rent, and we're threatening them with a bench warrant if they don't pay an amount or something. And I, I think that we, you know, we need to look at these situations and look at these um look at them, you know, with with their struggles and, and, and you know, the things that they're going through in life. Um, I, I think that's, you know, the, the objective of my part of the presentation, I guess. So if there's no other questions, I will turn it over to Judge Marcetti, I think, right? Yes. All right, so any questions for Judge Kuberman? And so, uh, Judge Farsadi, I've made you presenter so you can pull up your PowerPoint. I don't have a question for Judge Kuberman, but I'll just make a comment that I was just thinking of. Um, so when I first started, it was I was elected in 2016 and I started in 2017 and fair justice was the new thing. And so I learned to do things by fair justice from the beginning. So the old ways I don't even do. And then it dawned on me <laughs> that we had some judges and some pro tems who came in during COVID and they are, have always been doing things virtually. And so for them, it wasn't such a big change for all of these hearings to be virtual or telephonic. Um, and it's just kind of interesting how we keep progressing. And that's why these classes are important because, you know, those who have been here for a long time, it just keeps evolving and it keeps changing and things keep changing. And we need to keep up with the changes to um, continue to be able to serve the public better. I, I mean, I think that's such a fabulous point that you're making. Um, but I will say that easier because you didn't have those internal struggles with, you know, fair justice, because that is how you learn. And the same thing, I guess, with the with the new judges that have done everything virtually. But I will say there is some satisfaction uh, for those who've been around like me for a while to see how much we have evolved. Um, and and, and th there's there is some pride in that, too. So but I, but yeah, your comments were really well taken. See that. Uh, there, there are some of us who've, who've been around a while who will actually remember when people, when judges sent people to jail uh, days for dollars for not paying their fines. So some of us who go that far back. All right, let's turn it over to Judge Barsetti. And some of us go way back when they suspended their driver's license and motor vehicle would resuspend it and they just continuously got resuspended over and over again depending on the number of suspended license tickets they had received. 
but that's dating us. So, but thank you. And I am happy to be here to present. And um, I will just say that this has been a, a learning experience for me because I've never presented before. I've never created a PowerPoint. So there's a lot of first here. So thank you for your patience. And um, I have been asked to talk about Tempe Municipal Court's um, response to COVID and where we uh, had been, where we're going, where we are currently at. Also to be discussing some of the diversion programs that we have here in Tempe, um, how we operate our home detention um, program, uh, potential jail issues, medical turnaways, hardship issues, and, and, and uh, a little bit about work release. Um, so I'm just gonna go ahead and so, um, We'll go forward here. It's probably like many of you, uh, when COVID hit, everything shut down. We were shut down, I'm going to say, completely shut down with the exception of jail court and um, handling OPs and HIs for about a month. And there are three full-time judges and two commissioners. So the five of us rotated and took a week of covering jail court and any OPs. The others would work from home doing projects since obviously our line of work doesn't, uh, and we did not have the technology in anywhere near in place to operate a court virtually. Um, so we were pretty limited on what we could do. Uh, so all of our cases were reset. We stopped issuing warrants. We stopped setting OC, uh, orders of show cause uh, for compliance um, processing, and we tried to figure out where we were going to go and how we were going to do it. So then late spring, um, the, the uh, and in fact, we didn't even have the equipment. Um, uh, we all have computers on our benches. They do not have cameras. They do not have microphones. So we were really um, struggling. And so we had to really start from ground zero with equipment and of course, you know, that costs money. So then you, we had to, at times we had to share two, two um, little surf pros. Um, so it, it was just a, a, a huge, um, a huge undertaking and a huge um, process for Tempe Municipal Court to get a virtual world up and running. Um, we had to put um, processes in place in addition to many of us learn having to learn how to even work um, a computer and um, you know the format we use is Microsoft Teams so you know there's a lot of us that aren't that technologically inclined so that that was a learning curve as well however so then um, going into late spring early summer um, most of the civil traffic in OP and H I hearings were set virtually. Um, we transitioned and and had all of our arraignments and pretrials combined, and we did those virtually. We did not have any criminal trials, no non-jury trials, no uh, jury trials. Um, we also, in the criminal, well, and, and in the civil world, we have a walk-in docket where people could, could on pre-COVID, 
um, they could come in and handle any like outstanding warrants or let's say they needed extensions for, for traffic school, um, whatever they needed, they have an ability to come in on a walk-in docket. So all of that had to cease and we created a form that we left down in the area where security is. They, if they, um, they were directed to fill it out, if it was something that was completely necessary that they needed to see a judge, it would be evaluated, it would be sent up to us, we would review it, we would determine whether they would be able to enter the building, and of course, you know, all the protocols were in place. So that kind of went from late spring to early summer of 2020. Um, in early fall is when we began to try to resume jury trials and we um, resumed our bench trials. We limited access to the building to only those people that had pending cases. We did not allow um, uh, spectators or, or family members, you know, unless that was a, a, a minor or someone who maybe had some um, uh, challenges that needed assistance and we would limit the number of people into the courtroom we our courtrooms like probably many of yours were modified we had tape over the you know spacing tape we had spacing dots um, we tried to do the jury trials I know I was I had probably I was the only one that that had um, a couple jury trials um, back in the fall of 2020, we we really had no clue as to how it was going to take place because we didn't know how many jurors would show up. Um, I was able to get two jury trials uh, over probably a span of a couple months um, completed and because we, we did have barely enough jurors show up. Um, one case had to get continued because we did not have enough jurors um, show up, and then um, you know then came the the point in time where we just had to completely shut it down because things were getting worse, jurors weren't showing up, and it was it was not good. So then we go into the late fall and winter. We just kind of, oh, and also um, let me back up. We, all of the compliance issues we had stopped, but then in late fall and um, early winter, we started uh, to bring back the compliance issues and we had massive dockets of people that were not compliant with like orders to, like their um, substance abuse screening um, uh, home detention payments on restitutions so we um, tried to catch that up and also i think at that point in time we got clearance i believe it was from aoc um, or the work group, and, and I would just, I know that um, Judge Huberman was part of that work group, and I think that that was the best thing that probably could have ever happened for the courts, to bring us all on to pretty much the same page as far as our abilities to what we could do um, and, you know, which rules we could um, suspend. And so for, and in Tempe Municipal Court, primarily we're dealing with DUIs, we're dealing with a lot of students, we're dealing with homeless, um, mentally ill people. So um, the fact that we would be able to allow people to do their home detention on the front half of a sentence 
really helped. And then we could put their, have them do their jail time on the back half of after a plea. So that was very helpful. And then we go into the spring of 21 and late summer. And um, basically we were just kind of perfecting our virtual operations because it, it and uh, maintaining things and, and really perfecting how we were going to notice, give notice to groups of defendants because we were setting individual cases virtually. And, you know, we have large dockets and that took clerks a lot of time to, you know, set a, a, te a team's meeting for each person. And it, it was really kind of chaotic. So they perfected a way to kind of group it together so that it would, one email would go out to the group of people that were scheduled for a pretrial conference. So we just, we just had to work through all of those details, um, like probably many of you. Um, and then late summer to now, um, we did resume jury trials. Uh, I believe it was over the late summer of last year. Um, and, you know, it was, it was hit or miss on how many jurors would show up. Um, and we, we resumed, like currently we've resumed, we're pretty much back to normal, although we have kept our, our option of virtual appearances in place. Um, so if a person wants to re, um, request in a virtual uh, pretrial conference or even a virtual arraignment, um, we will accommodate that. We have specific dockets that are strictly virtual dockets. Um, and then we uh, also have, um, you know, sometimes people will show up on a virtual docket. We, we can accommodate that. And, and honestly, so there's three criminal judges and across our three um, criminal divisions, each of us do it a little differently. Like primarily my virtual, when I have a virtual docket, it truly is a virtual docket. My public defender appears virtually. My prosecutors um, appear virtually. Um, in the other courts, uh, I know one public defender prefers to show up in person, but may or may not have his clients show up um, virtually. So it, it's kind of a hybrid. Um, and uh, so then, uh, okay, so then we, we also um, return to all the in-person walk-in dockets. The staff was, was authorized to automatically set uh, reset orders of um, confinement and post-adjudicated cases um, until work release returns. So that's something that, that a policy was put in place because a lot of people that have a chunk of time to do, jail time to do, and they're with no work release, you, you know, the, you we're kind of in a holding pattern at this point. And so we just... Um, are setting sentence reviews out every 60 days. The person is required to contact the court to check the status of the work release. If it's still not in place, then we can reset it another 60 days. That's kind of been going on for the past two years. So um, that is where Tempe has been, where we have gone, where are we going from here? I think, um, if, for the most part, we're going to um, keep um, the virtual um, 
options open and I completely agree. It is the best thing that COVID in that sense has been the best thing that has ever happened to the court um, because it forced us to um, act quickly in setting it up because we really didn't have a choice. And it is um, very helpful, especially in our my world of, of municipal court in that the type of people that we deal with, you know, they are taking two or three buses to get to court or, or you know, they have to get on the light rail or the, you know, the, um, uh, the dash that they miss or it's too many people on it. And, and um, it's just much easier for them to appear virtually. And, the, and people that have children that they, you know, they couldn't find a babysitter or the kids were home, home being, you know, doing homeschool because the schools were shut down. So it really opened up a lot of, of positive things, I think. And um, I intend in my courtroom, you know, to utilize it to its fullest capacity. I've even had um, hearings. Now, I, I will only do that if all the parties are in agreement to it. It is, it is a little difficult um, because, um, you know, it's not the same as a person being here in person. But I, I have done an evidentiary hearing virtually. I have done a restitution hearing virtually. I did a um, probation violation matter virtually. Actually, the, the defendant was in the park. She had her two dogs with her, so she couldn't come into the courtroom because she had no one to watch her dogs. So she literally was in the park on a picnic table, and we were finishing up her her hearing. So um, I think it's I think it's I think it's a great thing that happened, and I am very excited to continue it. Um, so that's kind of where Tempe has been and where we're going. So I'm going to transition now to talk a little bit about the diversion programs that we have here in Tempe. We have a, a Title IX diversion is is operated by the prosecutor's office. They're the ones who make the determination as to who is eligible to participate in that program. And basically, um, the way that it works is, is they offer them that, that option. We do the plea proceeding form. Um, we send them over to Tempe Human Services, who then monitors and, and um, takes care of the rest of that. Now, the downside of, of all of these programs, I will say, is if they don't have the money to participate, that's the problem. So um, I don't know the answer to that. I know I do know that Tempe Social Services, they do work with people and um, offer sliding scales um, for different programs, but you know, ultimately that's still an issue and I'm not sure how we would work around that um, because really the court has no authority once it goes over to social services to waive any of the fees or that sort of thing. Um, so that that's one of the diversions. Okay, and then we also have the MIP program, which is usually for those um, underage drinkers, um, first offense, the, and that's also run by the prosecutor's office. So they're allowed to go to the MIP program and then they get their ticket dismissed. We have a youth diversion program. Those are primar primarily for curfew violations, and that works the same way. And then, of course, there's the defensive driving class, 
And then we have a bike pedestrian scooter diversion program that's fairly new. That is um, offered by the Tempe Police Department. It works similarly to the defensive driving school where they can go uh, to this bike diversion program and once they complete it then that ticket is dismissed and um i'm just going to kind of jump past the cap program but we have a mental health court and the way that that works anybody who is has been diagnosed as seriously mentally ill and they have a case manager we can just go ahead and transfer them to mental health court we have all of the um uh, case managers and um, the people involved with the, that system, they will appear to court. The, the person automatically gets a public defender. There's a prosecutor that handles the mental health court. So it's a, it's a therapeutic court. Same thing with the veterans court. Um, we have that and it's the East Valley Regional Veterans Court. So we, we ha house it here in Tempe, but we have um, some of the other cities come over and they run their veterans court out of Tempe's court. Um, so we have like Gilbert Chandler, Mesa, Scottsdale, or actually I don't think Mesa comes over, Scottsdale, um, Fountain Hills, Cave Creek, Carefree, and um, anybody who's served in the military, it doesn't matter if they were like dishonorably discharged or, or if, um, you know, they are no longer in the military, they can choose to have their case transferred over to veterans court and they, they can't have a trial over there. So if they did want a trial and contest the facts of the case, that would not really be an option. But um, over in veterans court, they have the VJOs from the, um, from, um, the VA. They have um, uh, other individuals with resources for them. Um, we do not have our own homeless court here in Tempe, so any of cases we would refer them down to the um, Maricopa County Regional Homeless Court. Um, we do have an individual who is part of Tempe Human Services. She is called a resource navigator, and she is, um, what her job is, is, is that she has the ability to connect people that are homeless with certain types of services. So if a person comes into the courtroom, and we get a lot of homeless people in the court, um, if they are homeless, we can pass her. She is here on um, Mondays all day and Wednesday mornings, and then she is available by phone on the other days. Um, but we can refer them to her. We have a resource list of, of all different sorts of things um, that they can, and with phone numbers that they can contact to try to get them into um, different services. Uh, I know, I'm honestly, I don't know currently, but the library used to, um, well, the Tempe Human Services is based out of the Tempe Library. So um, they would have the ability to help people get IDs and they would off offer that I believe it was every Tuesday. That was pre-COVID. I'm not sure how they're handling that now. Um, but those are different resources that we have available to us here in Tempe that we can refer people out to to help them with their immediate needs. Um, and okay, so I guess I've already talked about that. Um, okay, this is home detention. 
Um, our home detention program is run by Tempe Human Services. So the way that that works is if the prosecutor agrees that the individual is eligible for home detention, um, they will fill out a particular form and then we would refer them over to Tempe Human Services. They would be have their orientation over there and then from there uh, they would have the appointment where the equipment would then um, be installed in their home. Um, it is only available for DUIs, um, no other charges at this time and that's because our city council, that's the limitations they have put on it. Um, currently. So, um, and then as far as the court's ability to waive any type of fees on that home detention, um, we do not have that authority. Uh, Tempe Human Services will offer, um, they'll check uh, the, uh, their ability to pay and do a sliding scale or they have options over there, but the court really is not doesn't have the authority to waive any fees like we can't waive the home detention fees um, because it's it's their program um, and then as I already explained um, home detention was allowed to be served on the front half <clears throat> excuse me which was really um, it really helped help them uh, in the sense that they could then get as much done that they needed to do on their case so that when it came down to the actual jail time, you know, they could do that. Hopefully things would have been better um, COVID-wise. Um, so that's just something. And I think everybody was doing that because we then had the ability to do that where we had not before. Um, okay, so the next area I'm going to discuss is work release, medical turnaways, and hardship issues. First thing I'm going to talk about is medical turnaways. Some, and I don't know if this is something that you all face, but um, sometimes if a person reports to Maricopa County Jail, they'll be turned away for some type of medical reason. For example, maybe their blood pressure is too high, or maybe they have a wheelchair that they won't let them in with, or, a, or a, one of those scooters like for their like leg or whatever. Um, we have found that the way that, well, first of all, if a person comes back, it would be an order to show cause because they haven't complied with their jail sentence because they would be turned away and then the, the, the order from the jail would indicate that um, they were turned away for a medical reason and the person can share what they'd like to with the court once they came to their order to show cause. So depending on what the situation, is depending on what the turnaway reason is we can then go ahead and have them try it again so after several times of trying again if it still is not working we have found the way that we can um, and this, this is assuming that the defendant wants to do it this way and get their jail time over with and primarily we're talking about maybe like a one-day jail sentence it's not not uh, a huge amount um, we can have them booked from court so we would let the defendant know you can report to court knowing that you are going to go to jail straight from court. So when you come to court, be prepared um, for that. And then we would call a Tempe police officer who would then take him into custody, bring him to the jail, and then we'd find they would be, they'd have to take him. They couldn't 
not take them. So that would solve that problem. Another issue is we had people maybe with really severe medical issues and it was a situation where um, the jail would just say, you know, we can't accommodate that. So we have a, um, a way that we work with the jail doctor and I think currently it's Dr. Crutchfield and, and we, we utilize this for only those extreme cases that the person needs to get their jail time completed but is, hasn't been able to because the jail won't take them. We can work with um, doctor, whatever the jail doctor is at the time, they have um, agreed that they will assist in getting them into the infirmary and um, taking care of it that way. So that is, those are a couple things that we've been able to utilize to make sure that the cases are, get concluded and they're not dragging on indefinitely. Okay, and so then um, the, there was a, I think, uh, Charlie Ardenetto asks, what if work release doesn't return? Well, I don't think anybody has the answer to that. Um, from my understanding, it's... If it, I can, it's, my understanding that it's not going to return. Okay. We the have, jail, that the yeah, jail we, sounds like they don't want it to return. They might create their own program yeah. from the sheriff's office, but it doesn't sound like it will return. So, yeah. Okay. Well, but I can tell you the last... The last, yeah, the last information that we have been given is that they're working on it, but they don't anticipate anything until the fall. But, you know, that's that's kind of been going on for months and, and years. So um, who knows? Uh, I, I did. I happen to <laughs> throw this out to one of the sergeants. I was working on a different issue. Um, and I'll go into that in a minute, but I'm like, well, why can't you just have them um, require that they pro provide that they have the COVID vaccine like they do for the TB test? And because we were informed that, that if they're doing more than the one day in jail, they have to provide a, uh, a negative TB test. Well, apparently they really don't have to do that. That's what they tell us. Um, so that I'm sure that will never happen. They're never going to require anyone to have a COVID vaccine to get into jail. But um, anyway, so I um, have no solutions on that. One of the other issues that we have been facing um, recently is that, and, it, and it's because we do not have, we do not have the equipment or ability to do virtual appearance for people that are being held in Maricopa County Jail. So that is a big problem because what has been happening is these individuals have been in quarantine and they will not transport them. So, and, and just so you all understand, we have our jail court, uh, in custody court is um, held every single day um, seven days a week. They bring the county prisoners over on Monday through Friday. They will um, not bring over those that are in quarantine. So we could have a lot of defendants that don't come over 
and we're informed that they're not brought over because they're in quarantine. And when they they are asked how long are they in quarantine for, where the answer we had been getting was 30 to 45 days. Now keep in mind these are pre-adjudicated misdemeanor people, um, and and this it shouldn't be happening. Um, so anyway, this this has they're working on a solution to this, and um, I was fortunate enough last week to sit in with Judge Kane on the um, presiding judges um, like their Friday meetings. Uh, I think it's just once a month or whatever. Um, but there was some progress made where we have a um, a way to issue an order that those people that are in quarantine be transported regardless of their quarantine status. There's like there's multiple steps that you have to go through to, and and you have to create the order and then you have to make sure that there's there's different layers of people that are notified of the order and you can actually get that person transported. Now the, and we're assured that those people probably are not positive for COVID. They may have been exposed, but they are transported in masks, and it's not creating a a um, um, dangerous situation because they'll keep them separate. Um, now, we're, the only time that I've utilized that procedure and I, I will tell you, I, I had recently got that information and I tried it because I had two cases, both were set for jury trials. Both of them had been in for more time than the offense would be um, require. And they were OR'd on our cases, but they were being held on some other matter possibly a felony um, one there it was uh, different cities warrant so they we just couldn't get the person over here and the public defender and the prosecutor they're like if we can just get them over here we know it's going to be a time served change of plea we just couldn't it, it would couldn't get it to happen so anyway that's where we did some um i guess research or talking to different individuals and that has been a solution. Um, so since we have perfected that solution, I haven't I haven't tried it yet um, because I haven't had that situation um, come up so I don't know if it actually will work um, but that is that's an option so. Um, then finally, hardship issues. What we have uh, to address that is probably similar to all of you. We have a CAP program, although our CAP program is not tied into the CAP program, like the NCAP. Ours is our CAP program. Works similar. Um, a person can uh, uh, ask that it. Um, they can go on it. We require 15% or $300, whichever is less. They can also ask for a waiver of the down payment, which oftentimes we grant. Um, we do community service in lieu of money for those that are eligible. We also have um, 
uh, we have uh, the resource navigator, as I explained, we have CARE 7 and a homeless outreach coordinator. Those, those under um, that circle are um, run by Tempe Human Services, but those are resources that we can get for the homeless. And that is the end of my presentation. Is there any questions? Judge Triggs, I'm going to uh, make you a presenter so you can pull up your PowerPoint. And uh, thank you so much, Judge Barsetti. Judge Callender does in, it did indicate during your presentation that uh, in the Video Appearance Center, they do the COVID holds via the telephone. Um, so yeah. it is, those are, you know, that we're able to do those. Thank you, Don. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have the we don't have the equipment it, it, uh, honestly i think it'd be the best thing because look at the money you would be saving transporting them back and forth but that's not my call to be made so yeah. all right lenore click that there you go oh uh, you need to go to make uh, to the go to the top and click that down right click the other one and now go back to new from begin there you go All right, thank you, Judge Farsetti. Judge Driggs, unmute yourself. You're still muted. Okay. Okay. Sorry, my whole screen became the PowerPoint and I couldn't find where to unmute myself. <laughs> right. And it's Using my other screen. Okay, so anyway, good morning. Uh, I think it's still morning. Um, but let's see. So I'm going to talk about COVID-19 and look how far we've come. Uh, much of the things that we did in Justice Court to adjust were similar to that of Tempe Municipal. Unless any of you can think of anything that stands out that we did differently from what Judge Barsetti just, you know, explained to us of what we did. Um, I'm just going to go on a, you know, a different, not the whole timeline of, of what we went through, um, but move on from there. And you know, when I was thinking of this assignment, many things popped through my head. Um, but we're going to talk about what did we learn. We're going to talk about the administrative order that just came out, and Plan B, and then learning to live in this new virtual world. So as I said, many things popped into my head, and um, can remember y'all remember that shortage of toilet paper was the first thing that hit. And it's kind of like Pearl Harbor and 9-11. Where were you when, you know, the pandemic hit? <laughs> I was at Disneyland and, you know, we were thinking, is this for real? And then sure enough, when I came back from Disneyland, I believe it was that Monday, the governor had, um, you know, declared the emergency, the health emergency shortly after the president did. And in the justice courts, we were all at a loss of what to do. Do we shut down? what do you know what do we do so you know were you locked in your house were you running to costco what were you doing <laughs> i know that some judges thought they needed to shut down the court and they realized that uh you can't shut your court down um justice must go on and um so what did we learn from the pandemic now you know i'm this 
you know, like Charlie said, this is my first, my first PowerPoint. And so I wasn't as skilled as like Judge Huberman, she knows how to do one line at a time of, you know, what do we learn? So here you have some of my thoughts all at once, which I would have rather done them one at a time so that you can all kind of participate and, you know, let us know what you learned. Um, Cause you know, I prefer my teaching style to be more of a discussion leader rather than just an instructor. So feel free to jump in with what you've learned from this pandemic because we do we want to hear from you um, but like i said one of the things the first things we learned was that the courts cannot shut down and that justice still must go on um, we had to keep having hearings but um i think we must have been a little more advanced as far as being able to handle things virtually sooner um, because it felt like in no time we were already doing things telephonically and we were able to hear um, we were able to hear the, the hear the hearings telephonically and know that we weren't allowing people to come into the courts because um, you know at the beginning if you can remember it was all such a panic like what's going on how dangerous is this are we all gonna die um, so no one was allowed in the courts and for much of that a lot of people would come to court not realizing they couldn't and they were sent to their cars with a phone number and they would call from their car and attend court um, telephonically from their cars um, and then once you know we all calmed down a little bit we laid the foundations for proceeding with court hearings and um, we what we learned was that more people attended when they could attend by phone and so that was a, a great outcome um, so that's one of the second things that I put on here is that um, there's greater attendance and response when defendants were allowed to um, virtually appear and use other, you know, virtual methods that we had. Um, and I'm trying to see if I can see the comments there. Okay. Um, and and so that's been the biggest thing, and and I believe why you know Plan B came into effect too, which we'll get to in a little bit um that there's more participation and when there's more participation people are being able to you know attend court and there are less defaults and they understand what's going on rather than you know they just end up with a judgment and have no clue what happened and they know where to go from there um eviction participation by tenants i believe went up by, by about 35 percent and then um we still have and you know it started happening faster as all these traffic ticket cases were being handled over email and we were able to do a lot of things by email um and it's it's been really helpful for the the litigants um and then another thing is that evictions for the justice courts it felt like the biggest issue um i believe that um you know if you can re recall, you know, the governor issued a moratorium first and it was based on the, the public health risks that, you know, could be created or created or act exacerbated um, if people had to move out of their houses or their apartments and, you know, be out wherever um, moving and going into new places. We we're trying to keep people at a standstill. I know in Arizona, not everybody really did go on a lockdown. It was it was not like i would say arizona was not the state where people actually stayed in their houses but i think we tried for two weeks so we're not let anyone out but um 
that wasn't working. So anyways, the moratorium was supposed to help keep people in their houses and not out spreading um, COVID. And so then, you know, toward the end of that moratorium, then the CDC and, and the president issued their own moratorium. And both were attached to some provisions that the tenants had to be um, affected by COVID in order to get the protections of that moratorium. And so those were the things that we needed to learn and tell um, the, the litigants when they came to court that they had these options to be protected by the moratorium. Um, and, and the thing was is in this, every time this, these moratoriums or these orders would come out, the language were not very clear. And there were multiple um, moratoriums that would come out um, because they would expire and then they had to renew them um, because the pandemic didn't end. And that was one of the problems with the pandemic is we just didn't know when it was gonna end or, or what was happening with it. Um, so, you know, the, the moratorium would go, would have an expiration date, and then that expiration date would come and we were still in this big pandemic where nothing was getting better. Um, so with these moratoriums that weren't very clear, the Supreme Court would issue an administrative order. And then um, with that administrative order, um, Charlie Adernetto would, would help the courts um, across, across Arizona, not just in Maricopa County. Um, everyone was tuning in to, to learn his best practice and we would get a one hour um, presentation that was very succinct and, and we all were applauding Charlie because um, those would be like exactly one hour and they cover everything we needed to know and the new best practice, new best practice and everything that we needed to do for the next, what felt like two weeks in evictions. So it felt like every two weeks we got a new administrative order telling us what to do now. Um, and, you know, it was, it was pretty crazy. I think I still have PTSD from the pandemic and all the, the changes in the evictions. Um, but I, I think, you know, I'm recovering a little bit now because it's starting to, to feel like normal, which, you know, a new normal, but it's starting to feel normal. Um, and again, if anyone can think of anything that they learned, you know, reach in the comments or you can pipe in. All right, and another thing that we learned was that no one reads anything, okay? So we came out with forms, we came out with um, everything we could do to help the litigants understand their options um, with the moratoriums and with, um, with this pandemic, what they could do, that they could appear virtually, that they could um, sign a CDC declaration. We put it in the, the packets that they were served for evictions and they'd come on the phone and no one had read anything. They didn't know anything about the moratorium. They didn't, it, it felt like nobody was reading anything. And so um, hearings were longer because we were, you know, we felt like it was our obligation to explain to them what their options were to help them have you know, some justice, if, if there were these options out there for them, um, we needed to let them know about them. So, um, you know, evictions took longer, we we're explaining more from the bench. Um, but not only did the litigants not read anything, I think we had a lot of um, other people in our on our bench, maybe weren't reading anything because it was so much to keep up with. So um, they'd get emails, constantly getting emails because everything was changing and I think a lot of emails went unread. <laughs> um, another thing that we learned was that there was a lack of consistency on the bench. Like I said, a lot of things were changing quickly. I know that um, probably a lot of the landlord attorneys were having a struggle because 
each court would do things differently. And I think that's part of why we had so many new administrative orders come out because people would complain and then there would be this new order to tell us we need to do things this way. And then Charlie would do a new best practice and then people didn't like the best practice. Anyways, it was, it was crazy times, um, but we did try to pull together to create more consistency on the bench. And I, and I believe that it created a, a better working environment or of collaboration for all of us. I know that we now have higher attended roundtables um, and they come, people come from other counties to attend the roundtables because they know that, you know, we're very interested in making sure we keep on top of, you know, the updated case law, the updated um, statutes, everything so that we can do what we're supposed to be doing from the bench. Um, so that's been another great learning thing that's come from the pandemic. Um, another thing we've learned, um, <laughs> yeah, it's true. No one reads anything, but that was prior to the pandemic. Exactly. And, and, and hopefully people are learning, hopefully the pandemic helped people learn they needed to read so that they could keep up, um, but we'll see. Um, so another thing is there's less participation in virtual meetings. Um, so we have all these meetings now and they're virtual and people don't participate as many as much. Um, I don't know if it's because they're recorded and we all know that we're gonna be hearing our voice forever out there and other people are gonna hear what we said. Um, but I mean, it's a good thing. Like I said, we're sharing our knowledge with each other. And when people participate in the meetings, we learn from each other. And I think we walk away with more than if it's just like me here, the instructor, I don't, I don't claim to know everything. Um, but when other people participate, they bring in their comments and their ideas, because uh, we all do everything differently. We all have, you know, what's called judicial discretion and, and we interpretate the laws and the statutes differently. And it's good to see and hear from each other so that we can learn from each other. Um, and I think that helps create more fair justice. And um, as I say, but the litigants, however, I think they've become more emboldened um, when it's virtual because they're not looking straight at us. Um, so sometimes they can really go off on a judge when they know that they're far away from us. Um, I've had a few litigants, um, yeah, really go off on me. And it's quite interesting that they felt free to say the things that they said. Um, and then, Another thing is that if virtual attendance is an option, it will definitely be used. Um, so here we have this, this, you know, learning here and it's virtual and you're here and it's great. It's great that you're able to attend virtually. Um, hopefully though, that you are signed in and actually they're listening and not just signed in and not listening. Um, but it's a great option and that's, it's a great option for us and it's a great option for the litigants. Um, if they have that option, they're gonna use it. And that's why we saw such an increase in attendance for um, evictions and you know traffic tickets um, for, for a lot of the things that we do. Anyone have anything that they wanna add as far as what they've learned before I move on to the administrative order? If, if I could tie this into what I talked about at the beginning is that, you know, I, I think that it was a, a, a wake up call for a lot of us about 
the hardships and inequality um, in our uh, in our communities, uh, especially for for the justice courts where we dealt with evictions and the hardships of, of people not being able to pay their rent, who lost their jobs. You know, we all struggled uh, working from home, being locked up, whatever it was. But, you know, my household, we lost no income at all. Um, if anything, we spent less money. And, um, and, 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 and I think that, you know, that allowed me to see the privilege of my situation. And then when you compare it to what you know, the, the hardships and the reality of other folks. I think that that was a rude awakening for many of us. All right, thank you. And then there was a comment that said, during COVID, we learned that technology was able to assist the courts to continue our duties and responsibilities to the public. Yes, and a, and a, a better appreciation for technology, definitely. Um, so the administrative order, number 2022-46, um, came out in April, let's see, the 27th of April, 2022. Um, and it's interesting because um, my husband, who's a Superior Court judge, hadn't even seen it. I had to send it to him. I was like, it came out in April and he'd been waiting. So maybe some of you haven't seen this yet. Um, I'm assuming most of you have, but I highlighted the, the parts that I'm going to read. Um, so in June 2021, the Arizona Supreme Court's COVID-19 continuity of court operations during a public health emergency work group recommended best practices that should be retained or adapted post-pandemic, which included a recommendation that courts continue to use and expand technology to conduct remote court proceedings. The Plan B work group issued a report recommended remote and in-person proceedings, I mean, sorry, hearings in Arizona state courts in the post-pandemic world. The Arizona Judicial Council approved the adoption of the report about which hearing types should be held remotely and which should be held in person. Therefore, it is ordered adopting the presumptive standards as set forth in the appendix of the report regarding which hearing types should be held remotely and which should be held in person in Arizona courts. And these are the presumptive standards. Um, and the presumptive standards inconsistent with Arizona rules of court shall supersede procedural requirements of the rules. Um, and that the presiding judge of the Superior Court may adapt the presumptive standards as necessary due to and for good cause um, and the presiding judge of the Superior Court shall issue administrative orders adopting the standards for the Superior Court and for the Justice of the Peace Courts in their county. So, you know, we got the Supreme Court ordering and then the presiding judge over us is going to give his orders and how he sees fit for us. And then the presiding justice of the peace in each county shall coordinate with other justices of the peace to provide recommendations regarding the presumptive standards um, that will work best for the justice courts, justice of the peace courts in that county. Um, and then to the extent feasible, the presumptive standards adopted for co-located justice of the peace and municipal courts shall be the same for each court. So I, I Put exclamation points so that's interesting because you know i'm in a co-located court so that would say you know all five of us need to be doing things consistently the same um and again you know each each court here is their individual court and we're each individual judges but we need to be doing our best to um do things the same um it's further ordered administrative orders 
shall include a provision that authorizes a judge assigned to a case to make a hearing specific deviation from the presumptive manner in which a hearing must be held if holding the hearing in the presumptive manner is not practical or otherwise not in the interest of justice. And it must include a requirement to provide notice to the parties when such a deviation is made. So we have these presumptions of how the um, hearing should be held. But if there's a reason, a good reason why it can't be held that way, then um, we can deviate from the presumptive manner, but we have to make sure that um, the litigants are notified and we need to make sure that there's a good reason. We can't be the judge that says, I don't like virtual, I'm continuing the way we were pre-pandemic and everything needs to be in person. That's this order, you're not allowed to. And it says that this order shall be implemented no later than October 1st of 2022. So we've had some work groups. Um, I know that our justice courts um, put together a work group and I know that other city courts in the limited jurisdiction um, courts um, had their own work group and are sending or have already sent their comments to Judge Welty and we've sent our comments to Judge Welty as well. Um, so here is the plan B presumptive standards and this is um, Charlie put together a matrix that was for limited jurisdiction only. So it's a huge matrix and it covers, you know, for all of the courts in Arizona, um, the presumptive standards. But these are the ones that are for limited jurisdiction, the ones that we actually um, cover. And um, so as you can see, I'm sorry. Yeah, we only have about five minutes left. So why don't you jump ahead to the deviations? Okay. All right. So some of the deviations that we had, um, and I didn't, I didn't put them. Oh yeah, right here. Um, is that in the civil procedure that the bench trials, um, some of our, our work group had determined that like the bench trials, there was, they're too complex and we have a lot of proper litigants. So they were wanting to have these be in person and it, it works well. It works better for us to be able to, you know, control the, the courtroom, control how the, the hearing goes um, in protective orders. There were some other, well, it was listed as other. And so some of these are like ID issues. Um, there's motions to dismiss. And the biggest concern is when people come to dismiss a protective order and you see that they were saying, you know, this person beat me, they choked me or whatever. And then now they're back in, in a week saying, you know, I don't want this protective order anymore. And it's virtual and, and say they come virtually, but they don't show their face either. And you can't see um, if someone's behind there forcing them to have this dismissed i mean that's that's a problem um, that we can't necessarily know for sure that that's who the person is that's asking for it to be dismissed i mean you could if it's virtual have them hold their id next to them um, but you don't know who's behind them and at least in a courtroom you can see that no one's in there with them causing them to to ask for this to be dismissed also in criminal misdemeanor the bond for, forfeiture um you know we're seeking compliance and in-person can, you know, better resolve cases. If they come in person and it's something that need, can be resolved quickly and easily in court, if they're right there in person, we could just take care of the case right then and there. So that's what the, the um, group was saying. And then we have for the civil traffic boat, marijuana, um, what was that, the P word, um, parking and standing violations. Um, those are a lot of letters there that, you know, there's a diversity of issues. So that's the thing with all of those in the other, 
just so many things. And again, sometimes it's just handled better when people can come in and we can take care of their issues more quickly um, and figure out what's going on with them. But again, you know, it would be presumptive to be in person, but if people needed to appear telephonically, there's that, or virtually, there's that option. And then also with the juvenile hearing officer proceedings, um, our work group felt like there's more of an impact on the juvenile if they come in person. I mean, they did something wrong. They're learning to drive, they're learning, um, they're young, and it's just more of an impact when they have to come to court and face the judge and talk about what they did and face up to their actions. And hopefully they'll move on from there, um, you know, become a better driver or learn something from the situation rather than it being something simple that they were able to just get done you know, over the computer and it was no big deal. So that's what we were hoping that the juvenile hearing officer proceedings would, would be able to be in person. Um, anybody wanna to add to that as far as the deviations, anything that you've thought of or you're concerned with being held virtually or presumed virtual? All right, and then just to keep on time, so learning to live in a new virtual world. Um, you know, just some comments. I was hoping for comments of what you felt were the most beneficial things to come out of it, or the most difficult or biggest hassles, and any creative tips that anyone wanted to share for the benefit of all. And I know we're short on time, but um, if anyone wanted to add anything, but that's what I said, I would, I would go last because we can shorten mine pretty easily. All right, like I said, in the virtual, um, the virtual world, people like to participate less, but it's okay. Hopefully you walk away with something that you've learned. Um, um, it's just a couple quotes that I have. So one, one person that had said was an additional issue that I see is one of the demographics. A fair amount of the defendants I see could have financial techno technological knowledge or technological availability issues with appearing remotely that would make it more difficult for them to appear remotely than just appearing in person. And I would say, remember, these are presumptive standards and for good cause, we can deviate from them. You know, there are people who know they can attend virtually and you still see them come to court because it was easier for them and they're allowed to do that. Um, another thing that I, I heard or, or read was that one thing that we all should recognize and not forget is that technology can be a great, helpful, more efficient, um, but if everyone is not on the same page because they either can't be or don't want to be, that technology is no longer a benefit, but rather a detriment. So again, I say, remember, these are presumptive standards and for good cause, we can deviate from them. So remember, don't, go ahead. Can I just add here that the don't want to be is not us. Right. It can't be the judge saying, I don't want to be. Right. This is for the litigants, right? Yeah, or or the judge. There might be a judge that doesn't want to be um, all virtual, and and we can't do that. We need to follow administrative order, and the only reason that we're going to deviate is for a good cause, um, because again, we're trying to, um, you know, serve justice. Um, and uh, what I wanted to say too is that um, in the end, that that's all we're trying to do. And and someone else I had heard say was that. Um, it felt like depending on which court the person went to, that's, that could determine how their case is going to be handled more fairly or less fairly. And, and we don't want that to be the case. We'd like to all across the board be trying to do our best to serve fair justice. And this new virtual world lends itself really well to that. 
um, you know, creating a better platform for people to be able to participate, to know what's going on with their court cases. And um, we should be happy to be able to lend that to them. Um, and again, together we can work on this and together we can all hang in there with this new virtual world, whether we find it easy, if we find it easy, help help those other judges or pro tems or staff that don't find it easy. Change is hard and we all know that, uh, but we can work together and we can, we, can, we can do this. Thank you. And thank you, Judge Trix. I know we uh, kind of uh, went quickly at the end, but any questions for Judge Trix or any of our judges? All right, please make sure that you look at the materials. Uh, your la the last page of the materials is the COJET certificate. I am monitoring the interest rates. They will probably go up this afternoon and I will shoot out an email when they do. Uh, have a great day um, and thank you everybody. All right, thank you. Bye. Thanks, Mary Jo, it was great having